You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray together. O Lord God, we come before you, and our request is simple, that you would indeed cause your word to go forth as you have promised, and that it would not return empty and void, but that you would work in the hearts and the minds of your people, that you would strengthen your speaker, and work in him even in this very hour. And we pray, God, that you would use this all to your glory and to our good. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. In 1946, Hughes Oliphant Old wrote as he was beginning his work on worship He wrote these words, Worship is at the center of our existence, at the heart of our reason for being. We worship God because God created us to worship him. More recently, a minister named John Payne wrote that worship is the preeminent activity of the church. And the point of these two men, as they are writing, and they are not an enigma, they are not a side thought in the life of the church. The idea is that uh, worship is what we as human beings have been created for, is what we have been designed to do, both as individuals, but especially as we come together as the church, God's called out assembly, who have been called out for the specific purpose to worship him. I think that generally, you know, if you survey the landscape uh, you would come to the conclusion that people gather together in churches for worship. 
And yet, if that is true, if it is the greatest thing that we can do, both individually and corporately, is to indeed worship, if that reality is the preeminent activity of the church, the first thing and the greatest activity that the church can do that cannot be surpassed by any other, then it is indeed worth our time to ask the question, what should that worship look like? What is worship? How ought we to worship the Creator? Is there such a thing as acceptable worship, worship that is pleasing to God, or are we just free to praise God in whatever way seems uh, 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 to fit us best or seems to uh, please us the moment or the most at the moment? And so this morning, as we uh, begin to look more specifically at the topic of worship for the next few weeks, uh, I want to say from the outset, just to be clear, you know, this question that we are dealing with about worship, it, should, it is not a question about style. It's not a question about whether an organ is more acceptable than a guitar or whether we should sing songs that are five years old or a hundred years old or a thousand years old. That is not the point. We're not talking about what some would consider today as preferences. We're asking more basic questions about what the nature of worship is because before we ought to consider how to worship, we need to consider what worship is. And the main question we are asking is, is there some worship that is acceptable, another worship that is not? Are there some offerings that are fit to bring before our king and not others? That is the question. We are servants of a king. We serve a master. And the question is, are there certain offerings that are befitting to bring before this king and certain offerings that God finds acceptable and others that God rejects. And is there such a thing then as acceptable worship or not? Does what happened back in Genesis 4 to Cain and Abel still apply to us? When Abel offered an acceptable offering and God was pleased with it and Cain offered an offering that did not please God and was not accepted because there was something wrong with the offering itself, not just the heart of the worshiper, but the offering given as well. Are there some principles in that meeting with God there that apply to us today? Or is worship just about the sincerity of our hearts? That as long as what we bring comes from a heart that longs to worship our God, that that is all that matters. That we can do it in whatever way that we deem uh, necessary and worthy. Well, this morning, beloved, um, to answer that question, we come to a text in the book of Hebrews that shows us that we worship at Mount, si or Mount Zion, not Sinai. We worship at Mount Zion, not Sinai. We come to a text this morning where the author of Hebrews has been writing to a, a, a group of believers who are indeed Christians and if you're familiar with what's going on uh, as he writes to these people, many within this particular congregation that is being spoken to, preached, many believe, uh, uh, many of them are Jews who are leaving the church to go back to worship God the old way. In other words, these are Jews. This is a church that is filled with Jews, many who believe that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and joined this new gathering of God's people called the church. 
only to be drawn back to the ceremonies, to the sacrifices, to the temple, to Jerusalem again. And so the author of Hebrews has been uh, dealing with this particular issue. He has, throughout the whole of his book, been making the case how the new covenant, that which has come in the person of Christ, is better and greater than what God had, or, or God had instituted before, what has gone before in the old covenant. That the sacrifice of Christ is greater than the sacrifices given in the temple in the old covenant. That this new covenant is what, uh, is what has been found in Christ is far greater than worshiping God in the shadowy forms and the way the saints of old did before God came and manifested himself in human flesh and dwelt among us. And part of what scripture is doing here is convincing us that worshiping God through the new covenant, coming to God through Christ, is not only greater than coming to God through Mount Sinai, through the old covenant, it is the only way now. And we come to worship the same God of the Old Testament in a far greater way. It is not a new God, it is not a new religion, it is the same old thing, and that is what the author is seeking to instill in us. And so we do have to ask the question, is that true? You know, do we worship through Christ the same God as the God of the Old Testament? Because if you go back to the Old Testament, uh, God makes it clear throughout that worship, there is worship that is acceptable and worship that is not acceptable to him. If you go back and read passages like Leviticus 9 and indeed chapter 10, like we read this morning, Aaron, in chapter 9, he brings an offering in worship to God, this sacrifice for sin, and it is accepted by God. The text makes it very plain. Aaron offers this sacrifice, this worship, and then he walks away unscathed. In the very next text, the scene we read this morning, Aaron's two sons offer an offering that is not pleasing to the Lord. It is not acceptable to him, and they are immediately consumed in fire because they brought strange fire before God. They brought something, something about it was unacceptable to God and they were consumed because of it. For God, even as this scripture declares, is a consuming fire. Or if you go to other places like 2 Samuel 6 where David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back from Philistine possession, this moment that is to be a glorious conquest and moment in the history of Israel, And yet at one point, Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark as the ox cart tilts and the ark is uh, uh, going to fall upon the ground. And when he does so, Uzzah is burned by fire. For the anger of the Lord broke out against him. Well, why would that happen to him? What was it about touching this thing that that caused it? Well, again, if you look at this particular text and you go back to Numbers 4, God has made it clear how this ceremony that you see unfolding is actually a worship being brought before the Lord. And he gives clear instruction about how God is to be worshipped in this particular ceremony of the ark going forward before the people. And yet God's people ignored it and they brought the cart up or the ark up, not with all the people and the priests, not with priests carrying it, Or with sacrifices being made before it, but they brought it up upon an ox cart, just like the uncircumcised Philistines would have and indeed did. And there's a direct connection in the text. In other words, there is something unacceptable about that particular worship that was brought. 
Even though Uzzah's heart was clearly in the right place to not see the Ark of the Covenant desecrated by touching the ground. And it becomes clear just from looking at two brief texts in the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a God who's very particular about the way worship is brought to him. He cares very much about how he is worshipped and he specifies exactly what is What is not acceptable worship to bring to our Heavenly Father? And so the question is, is that just the way things were under the Old Covenant? Or does that transition into the New Covenant as well? For as you come, as we gather together, the Scripture tells us here, we come to God in a new way. We come under this New Covenant, not Mount Sinai, according to our text, but to Zion. We come and worship At Zion, what is he saying by that? What does that mean exactly? He's saying you're assembling. When you gather together as God's people, it's not like the assembly before. They came to a mountain, a physical place that smoked. And he quotes Deuteronomy 4. They came to something that was physical and earthly where God drew near in shadowy form and they came near into this place that was covered in darkness and dread and with fire and a whirlwind. Clearly the presence of God was in this place and it brought terror upon the people and reverence and awe for even Moses himself trembled at the sight. But you don't worship like that. There's a difference between us and them. Oh, you come to a mountain, even according to our text, when you worship, but you come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. You come indeed to the presence of the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice that's the main difference here. It's not that the God of either mountain is indeed different, something to ponder. It is the same God, both then and now. Verse 29 calls God a consuming fire, a clear reference to the God of the old covenant. It's that one covenant. The difference is that one covenant was earthly and God was seen in shadowy form, hidden from men in a cloud. And he says, now you come to Mount Zion itself. It's not that one day, notice the language, it's not that one day you will worship at Mount Zion where God is. You're there now. If you care about the things about God, if you're uh, about dwelling in uh, uh, God's presence, don't go back to these shadowy forms because you're standing in the presence of God at Mount Zion where he dwells now when you gather for worship. Don't know how to come back from that. (laughs) Getting excited here. You come now into the presence of God himself. Don't return back to those shadowy things. Every time we worship and gather to worship on any Lord's day, Scripture is saying you indeed are being caught up into the heavenlies and you are worshiping in the presence of God himself now. I mean, do you believe that, people of God? It's a very strange thing to hear. And we often, you know, uh, maybe it sounds too cosmic, maybe it sounds too mystical. Indeed, it sounds hard to believe, too grand for us. 
We look at the four walls around us and say, hey, pastor, you know, it sure looks like we're in Fawn Grove worshiping God right now, that we haven't been caught up into any kind of the heavenlies. That's off in the future for us at some point when we die, right? But notice what the text says. You come to Mount Zion. You come, that's present tense. That means right now. You come into the city of the living God at this moment, And you worship him, notice the text, with myriads of angels, literally thousands upon thousands, nay, 10,000 times 10,000 angels. You worship the living God with them, together with them now as they gather in festal and joyful assembly to praise and magnify our God. Some Reformed literature that is recited in Reformed churches even to this day actually says, now together with angels, And archangels and all the company of hosts, we praise you and sing, magnifying your holy name. And those aren't just empty words. They mean it. We praise you with the angels together right now as we enter into your courts of praise. And that's just not randomly thought up. It's based on the text that is here before us where we praise God together with the angels. Notice what the next phrase says. You come to Mount Zion and you praise with the angels and with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And this is a reference back to Exodus chapter 4, where God speaks to Moses and says, when you speak to him, tell him Israel is my firstborn son. All of them, for the whole people of God, release him that he may come and serve me. And you get to see a picture here. God says, you The whole people of God, you come and you worship me and you serve me. You have been delivered from the household of bondage for this purpose. You, people, O God, you worship with that entire assembly who have been enrolled in heaven, whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. Every one of God's elect children, when we gather for worship in this place, we worship with them now. We don't just worship with the people seated here around us. We worship with all the saints scattered across the globe who gather to worship our God in spirit and in truth. And we worship with the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect according to our text. In other words, we worship not only with angels, not only with the church that gathers for worshiping God all throughout the world this day, But all the saints who have died in the faith from the time of Adam until now who stand in God's presence and we worship with them. We worship alongside of Abraham and David and Elijah and the prophets and the apostles. We stand and we worship with them as we gather this day. That's what that song said this morning that we sang. Do you remember It has all of these elements. We praise thee, O God. But along with you, to you, all angels cry aloud. Both cherubim and seraphim continually do cry. The apostles, glorious company, the prophets, crowned with light, all the white-robed martyrs, your constant praise recite. The holy church throughout the world confesses thee to be, O Lord. That hymn was written in the 4th century, and they weren't just saying, wouldn't it be nice if that is what worshiping God was like? No, they were declaring in this song the words of Hebrews 12, who they worship God with. As they would gather together, 
They worship this God with a great assembly, far greater than the eye can see. And surely, this is who we worship with as we enter into the presence of our Heavenly Father, as we are called up into the heavenly courts to worship God the Judge, the text tells us, through Christ Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, whose blood sprinkled over you speaks a better word than Abel, For Abel's blood only cried out for justice, but Christ cries out now not only for justice, but for mercy and grace. That justice was satisfied in his own shed blood. Justice is satisfied there so that we now stand in the presence of our God, who is the judge, unharmed. No dreadful verdict standing against us. Not judged guilty for approaching the holy of holies as sinners, but drawn right into the very chamber, into the very inner sanctuary of God with all the company of heaven and this great company that is articulated here. And scripture tells us because that is true, therefore, offer acceptable worship. Offer acceptable worship. Verse 25, because of all these things we've just spoken of, because you are standing in the presence of God now, with nothing veiling you before him, nothing between you and him, how will we escape the judgment, his judgment, if they did not? You remember those ones who worshipped God and immediately upon seeing him, they turned to their own idols and turned to the golden calf and away from their God? How will we escape if we stand in the presence of this holy God without any veil, without any physical break between us? God gave them those words in that assembly at Sinai, yet judgment fell on them because they were careless in their service to God. They followed the idols of their own hearts when they disobeyed God, but how much more ought we to come with reverence and awe to this God because we don't come to Zion or Sinai. We come to Zion. It's an upping the ante kind of argument. You know, for them, it's a big deal. For us, it's more so. If they were judged when they turned away from the one who came in an earthly mountain in a veiled shadowy form, where the presence of God was displayed in a cloud and in a fire and a whirlwind, how much more danger is there for us if we turn back from the living God? Because Zion is where we worship, not in the earthly Jerusalem, not in these shadows and sacrifices and in the temple. We worship in the presence of God. Do you see this, people of God? I mean, when we gather together today, we, just, we don't just worship in this room We enter the very throne room of God. We are lifted into the heavenlies themselves. Often we think of worship as something for us and for our edification. Worship becomes this very personal experience as long as you experience something fulfilling, as long as it makes you happy, as long as the sermon gives me 10 reasons or ways to improve my marriage, or because of all the bells and whistles and smoke and mirrors that entertain me at worship. Because you like those things that it's good to worship in that particular way. And it's true, if we worship God rightly, we will be edified, we will be strengthened, and we will be encouraged. But if we enter into the very throne room of the king, that worship isn't ultimately about you. Your edification will be a byproduct of the offering 
that has brought. Worship isn't about what you feel like bringing today. It's not about what you think might be nice to do for God, but as we gather as the church, God's people, right here and now, as we enter corporately with the whole assembly of hosts, with all that company listed in verses 22 through 24, as we gather with angels and with archangels and all the company of heaven, 10,000 times 10,000 angels, as we sing alongside the saints who have died in the faith from the time of Adam on, as we worship our God alongside Abraham and David and Elijah and the prophets and the apostles, all the saints who have been gathered and worship God truly this very day throughout the whole world in the presence of God the judge and Christ Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. I mean, do you believe that? Because if you do, if you see that this is indeed what Scripture is declaring to you, might it not, at the very least, give us pause before we enter a worship service to see that our hearts are right as we stand before the living God? Might it cause us to consider our sins and our need for cleansing? Might it change how we sing praises, knowing that we don't sing for the person next to us? It doesn't really matter if they hear that you're tone deaf or not, because you sing for the king seated at the throne, who's in your presence now. And if we truly assemble at Mount Sion, might not this day, this hour, become more important to us than perhaps the football game that's on after, in the afternoon? Or more in, become more important than anything else we might even do this week? Because we stand, heaven forbid that that would be the case, might it cause us to strive not to neglect our meeting together, not because it matters to Pastor Shane, but because this hour you come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Surely it would inform and change the way we worship in church if only we had eyes to see we are called upon by faith to trust and believe. If just for a moment our eyes could be opened up and we would see the myriads of angels gathered, maybe then we would believe that worship isn't about you, but it's about God, about bringing glory to him. Surely this is the application of our text before us. Notice what the text drives at speaks about this coming judgment of God all the way through verse 27. And then verse 28, God says, and I follow Calvin here in this particular reading. He says, therefore, this immovable kingdom which we have received, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, let us have it by grace. In other words, the city of the living God that is offered to us in the gospel, may we have it and hold on to it by the grace that is offered and then the Greek says, on account of this, for this reason, for all the reasons listed above about this immortal or immovable Mount Zion that we worship at, for this reason, let us bring acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He is the same God as before. He has not changed. The one attested to in the old covenant, he is not a feminine, kinder, gentler God. But because of all these things, people of God, Scripture calls us to worship God in the way he deems fit. I mean, the words are right there. Bring acceptable 
worship. Let us worship him according to his commands with reverence and all. That doesn't mean you come to church grumpy. By no means is that implied here. We gather as a festal, joyful assembly, according to verse 22, with all the company of heaven. We're doing something wrong if we come uh, to church grumpy. For we are to come, how can we not come into the presence of the living God who has drawn us near to him by the blood of Christ with joy and gratitude? If the grace of the gospel is true for us, how can we not draw near to him with joy and gratitude in our hearts? For Christ Jesus has cleansed us of all our sin and through him, through the mediator of the blood of the new covenant, we worship the living God at Mount Zion. Joy and gratitude, they are inherent in our worship. Our worship will be joyless if we fail to realize what it is that God has done for us, how we are sinners in the highest degrees who are not worthy to enter into the presence of this holy God. We are not fairly good people. We are people with problems and sin-filled hearts, idol factories that constantly turn away from this living God whose presence we have been brought into. And when we have a good look at who we are and who God is, it should be incomprehensible to us. It should just blow our minds away that God still, though he knows who you are, he wants to worship with you. He wants to meet with you, miserable, unworthy sinners though we are. People of God, in the words of one of my brothers, you have peace with God through your mediator. And today, you have come to do business with your God this morning. And he has come to do business with you. He has come to give you morsels from his heavenly banquet table that one day you will sit with in sight. Faith will pass away and it will be realized. But now we must participate in these things by faith. But it is no less real today than it will be in that day when you have gathered into the presence of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, may that shape how we come to worship even this day. For you have been accepted, people of God, by the sprinkling blood of Christ Jesus that cleanses you. Not so that you can sin all the more that grace may abound, by no means, but you have been cleansed in order to worship your God and joy gratitude and with reverence and all for our God is a consuming fire. May we indeed do these things, not because we are able to do them on our own. Surely we fail. Surely our hearts are often not right as we enter into this assembly. And yet, may we strive for these things because of the joy that is set before us. The one who is seated at the right hand of God Almighty cleanses you and draws you into Mount Zion. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you after looking at these weighty things. Father, forgive us when we fail to come into your presence fully knowing what it is that we are doing, often coming haphazardly, expecting you to want to be with us. And yet, Father, we confess that we come to you in these ways and we pray that you would forgive us our sins as you have promised to do so and as you have guaranteed in the sacrificed body and blood of Christ Jesus. 
Father, we pray that you would continue to turn our eyes to him, that we might be overwhelmed with the joy and the grace of the gospel that has been given to us, that it may indeed change who we are, even as we gather and assemble in your very presence this day with one to another. Father, we thank you for all that you have given to us, and we praise you in the name of Jesus, who is our mediator of a new and precious covenant. In his name we pray. Amen.